When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Looking for something to do after Halloween is over? Are you into the strange, bizarre, and unusual? On November 3rd, 4th, and 5th, the Strange Realities Conference is coming back to Nashville, Tennessee and streaming online. Come join us for three days exploring mysteries, supernatural, the occult, weird history, and more. Featuring lectures, presentations, and workshops by Tim Banal, Zach Hunt, Leslin Vance, Bryn Collier, Tobias Whalen, Brent Rains, Joshua Cutchen, Kiki Dombrowski, Recluse, Nathan Isaac, Christopher Ernst, Aaron Gullius, David Metcalf, Timothy Renner, Mallory Samwitzki, Soraya Azkath, and special guest Steve Berg as your Master of Ceremonies. Make sure to join us for the fun and informative weekend online and at SIR Nashville November 3rd and 4th and online only November 5th. Tickets are available at strangerealitiesconference.com. Guys, welcome to Conspiracy Normal. Very excited about this uh, episode tonight because we're going to delve into history on this one and how past events can reflect what's going on now. And um, this is a guest that we just had on not too long ago with John Brooks um, talking about their podcast, Pod Only Knows. But we've got Kelly J. Baker with us. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Yeah, thanks for coming on. In that episode, we kind of teased a little bit of that you wrote a book about the 1920s Ku Klux Klan. Right. And it's called Gospel According to the Klan, the KKK's Appeal to Protestant America, 1915 to 1930. And we're going we're gonna to delve into this book. And uh, Sir Fiel is here. He, he's... Um, been a little under the weather so but uh, he'll be chiming in um, when he can kelly let's get into this the general question i ask everybody is like what interests someone in writing whatever they're writing about sure. and what interests you in writing this book about specifically the clan of the 1920s sure sure so one of the things that um got me into this is that I'm from rural Florida and I was already kind of interested in the Klan because when I was in high school, there was this threat of a Klan rally that was going to happen. And I was really fascinated by what adults weren't saying about it, right? That there were people that were against it, but there was a whole bunch of silence around it. And people that I think kind of tacitly agreed with the Klan, who didn't want to speak out against the Klan or white supremacy, who didn't really want to take a stand against it, kind of wanted to see what was going to happen. And that kind of always stuck with me in some sort of way. And so then I got into graduate school and um, I got really annoyed (laughs) by people in my classes 
who always wanted to say, when we talk about America, we're talking about is like progress, right? And what we're talking about is like pluralism. And we're talking about is like all the good things. And I always thought about that Klan rally in the back of my head, right? About like, you know, no, there are all these like examples that I could think of, of things that weren't progressive, that weren't pluralism, um, that definitely weren't about like religious love, right? Or something like this. And so I kind of wanted to find a case study that I could use that really worked against that. And so I came back to that clan example again and again and again. And I thought about which instantiation of the order I wanted to work with. And I came down to the 1920s clan partially because I could find the records. I'm a historian by trade. So part of it was that I could find the records about them. But part of it is I was just really fascinated by the fact that they were writing so much too, <laughs> that they had so many of these documents, so much of the stuff that they were writing down, all these sorts of things that I could kind of go through, that they were so wordy and so interested in print um, so that I could kind of follow along with them in a way that um, I wasn't as sure I could do with some of the other clan organizations that they, for them to be an invisible empire who was supposedly secret, they were really public. <laughs> about a lot of different things, right? Um, you know, uh, and really left behind a lot of information and material and that kind of thing. And that's kind of what drew me into it is this like lingering interest. Okay. And we should, for the benefit of the listeners, Serfiel and I know, but for the benefit of the listeners, can we talk a little bit about the history of the 1920s clan? Sure. And what kind of separates it from the clan that came before sure. and maybe what came after? Sure. Because it, the dates um, on the book are 1915 to 1930. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk a little bit about why this particular iteration of the clan came to be. Sure, sure. So the 1920s clan is considered somewhat distinct from the other clans um, because it was the one that was the most mainstream. So it comes to be because it um, draws from the earlier Reconstruction clan, which happened right after the Civil War, draws inspiration from that clan, but tries to re-understand itself as something different. That it wants to say that it's not as violent as that previous clan, that it's not necessarily about antagonizing or... Um, going after northerners, carpetbaggers, right, this sort of thing, that it's not necessarily about terrorism in the way that that first clan was, that it really tries to rebrand its image in this second clan. And that it's it's also inspired by Birth of a Nation, right? The film, um, that it really likes the idea of seeing Klansmen on screen and reimagining themselves as these like epic, um, Christian soldiers, right, who are coming to the rescue in some kind of way as well. Um, and so this order really comes from the idea of this guy, um, William Simmons, who says that what he really wants to do is create this Christian order who is going to save America from itself. It's going to come in and it's going to be white Christian men who who are going to bring the country back to its roots, 
these white Christian roots, but also serve as some sort of defense for the nation too, right? Soul and savior is the idea that he has, that this is what it's going to do. And so this idea is really appealing. The second clan has millions of members. It's in 48 continental states. Um, The membership is is profoundly middle class. Um, You have dentists and doctors and lawyers who are part of this order. Uh, You have it in the North and the South, right? You have it in places like Oregon and Indiana. Um, So it's all over the place and it kind of booms. And this is different than what people tend to think of when they think of the Klan, right? As like backward or uneducated or fringe or something like this. Um, this is also really different from the 1960s Klan, which was more violent, which was definitely more against um, African-Americans, very much pro-segregation, this sort of thing. The other thing that makes the 1920s Klan distinct is that they were definitely anti-Catholic, they were anti-Jewish and they were anti-African-American. But part of what I talk about in the book is a lot of what drove them was anti-Catholicism. A lot of what they were focused on was Catholics instead of focusing on African-Americans as much as the previous Reconstruction Klan or the later clans of the 60s or the 80s, um, that sort of thing. That makes them different too. I was going to say that's in response to those historical migrations that are happening. That's exactly right. In the new century. Right. Yeah, definitely in response to immigration patterns and concern over the fact that there are Catholics and Jewish people that are moving to the U.S. And what does that mean for America? Right. Like, is that going to change who lives in America? Is that going to change what happens with, um, let's see, let me back up. Is that going to change who's voting, right? Is that going to change the character of the nation in some sort of way around like what our cultural norms are? Is that going to change the character of the nation, which is something the Klan was really interested in, um, which is basically code for like, are there going to be less white problems? Protestant people, you know, defining things in some sort of way. Um, But yeah, it was a direct reaction to that. You're exactly right. Simultaneously, there's a a broader base of support that they're looking for and a broader base of enemies or targets. That's exactly right. And and the Klan doesn't shy away from calling these folks enemies, right? They very much understood Catholics and Jewish people and African-Americans to fall on these enemy lists, right? That they were folks that you had to watch out for, that they were antagonists. And they would even go as far to suggest that these were folks that were persecuting the Klan, which is a really interesting rhetorical move, Um, but to suggest that they're persecuted by these folks too, right? Um, That these are people that have come in and are taking over the nation and are being mean to white Protestants in some kind of way, uh, which completely ignores the fact that the Klan um, was part of the dominant group and was avidly arguing for the persecution of these people, of course. Um, But they wanted to be um, the victims in some sort of way, too, the Klan did in this. You talk about there's there's two murders that kind of bookend the 1920s clan, yes. and one is responsible for its rise, and another is respo- responsible for 
the beginning of its downfall. Right. Um, and that's the murder of Mary Fagan in 1913. Uh-huh. And then I forgot the other Oberhauser was yeah. her name oh. in 1925. Right. Yeah. Those are the beginning and ending of the books, right? Is that it starts with um, the murder of Mary Fagan um, and the lynching of Leo Frank, who is accused of murdering her um, on very scant evidence, right? Um, And it's the Knights of Mary Fagan um, who lynch him, uh, who set the groundwork for the beginnings of the Klan in Georgia. And then the murder of... And I'm going to get her name wrong if I'm not careful and I don't want to do that. So let me, but I'm pretty sure it's Madge Oberholzer. So um, sounds right, doesn't it? I feel like I'm going to mispronounce it, but um, who uh, is murdered by D.C. Stevenson, a Klan leader from Indiana. And this murder suggests to the larger public that the Klan has left behind its ideals because it's the murder of a white woman when they're supposed to be the supporters and protectors of white womanhood in some kind of way. Um, But that's supposed to be that moment of downfall that we can sort of tell this story in that way. And I thought it was a really compelling story, right? That you could start with one and then end with the other. Um, But it doesn't quite complete the story of the Klan because one of the things that I try to do with the book is push this idea that um, the Klan is more than the order. It's about the ideas that they have, these ideas about white Christian nationalism that live on past them. So that we can talk about how the order kind of starts to trail off in 1925 with this murder. But these ideas about white Protestant nationalism that they have really still continue to have a hold in American conservatism after that. So that the stuff that they're doing, um, the rhetoric that they have at least continues on so that people might not continue to wear the hood and robe but the stuff that they're saying and thinking and believing like that stuff has like a legacy in some kind of way. Um, and that's part of what I want people to pay attention to with the book. And that I hope that it kind of does is to say that sometimes when we get caught up with groups like the Klan, what we get caught up on is the like spectacular pieces, right? Because how can you look away? I mean, this is what they're known for, right? The hood and robe, the fiery cross, right? The flag, like there are these pieces, like the theater of it really draws us in and it's what they're known for. Um, But their ideas um, are the longer lasting features that I think often get overlooked that we have to pay attention to too, right? As opposed to the props that they're kind of known for in a way. Yeah, and they themselves borrowed from earlier times, like the Know Nothing yeah. movement and the nativism. But right. that, you know, yeah. that was a stream in right. American political discourse for at least a century by the time right. the the clan come this clan comes along. And I like right. what you said about, you know, that really what all that happened was it just kind of took off the sheets because of similarly that happened with the first clan in reconstruction right like yeah they got busted up but they 
if you look at the history of reconstruction that came out more in the open and these gun clubs and these, these things that really ended in the, the idea of redemption in the South and how that, how all that happened. And so you have a very similar thing in mm-hmm. um, 1925 is a good place because it's the beginning of the demise. But even you said, I think in 1928, that's when their March, big March in Washington was, and they came out against Al Smith, who was the first right. Catholic um, nominee for president. Right. So there was still, even then, there was still some influence that they still that they still held on to. Right. Yeah. They're still around. Right. They don't just instantly yeah. kind of disappear in 1925. Like, um, like sometimes it's been suggested, right, that they just kind of and then they're gone. Right. But you do see them pop up. Um, again in the later 20s and you know and some of the newspapers run until a little bit later too where they're still at least producing this print culture as well um for a little bit later but they do kind of hang around i mean and the thing about them too is like even when they like disappear (laughs) they tend to reappear right um from the reconstruction clan to the 1920s clan the clan of the 60s the 80s right to more modern versions of the clan um they really just won't go away in some way um now they're more loosely connected and what tends to connect them is the imagery right that there's the stuff that they're wearing that connects them more than the ideology anymore because it's loose and it's not as united as it was in the 20s, right? Where it was one order, where there was membership and there were local chapters and they all belong to one thing. That doesn't exist anymore. Um, but the like idea of the clan and the robes and the hood and the fiery crosses, that's kind of continued on, right? In different iterations. And that doesn't seem to want to go away in any way, shape or form. Um, and when I think it's about to, it pops back up again so it's whack-a-mole it really is whack clansman at the <sighs> pinnacle of the 20s clan what are what are those membership numbers like or just estimates we're talking yeah about so, so estimates are millions right so four to six million is what some historians have estimated um which is kind of wild numbers right um yeah and and some historians have suggested that those are lower estimates. Um, I I don't know, but the four to six million is what I tend to stick to you. And then for the women of the clan, the number that's usually thrown around is half a million women that were involved. So um, the four to six million is just the men's order. That's a lot. And that's in the broader context of the golden age of fraternity. So mm-hmm. a lot of people at the time are just, I mean, they're, they're joining clubs. Right. You know? Right. They're joiners at that moment. Yeah. Um, And joining multiple things too. Right. And multiple fraternities as well. So, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about their conception of Protestantism and Mm -hmm. how this concept of Protestantism, how it gave a real wide appeal to Protestants at large in the United States. Yeah. So one of the things that they did is that they constructed a Protestantism that was more generalized. So instead of it being like a denomination, so they didn't come out and say that like the Klan is Methodist or it's Presbyterian, right? 
Instead, they took like general characteristics of Protestantism and went with that, right? So that they were very much followers of Jesus and had a particular idea of who Jesus was, right? That he was about self-sacrifice, that he was a masculine dude, right? So they're muscular Christians. So he's a masculine guy, right? Who you follow. He's about self-sacrifice, Um you He's know. the coming out me, bro, Jesus. Yeah, no, he very much was, right? Like before I I didn't have that language when I was writing, but it's very much that kind of idea of Jesus that's there. I love that. Um, you know, that there's an idea that that Protestants are important because of Martin Luther and that they can trace their origins to Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, that um going to church is important is a key part of this doesn't matter which denomination right but you go to church um that you have a certain theology that the clan approves of um that is jesus-centric that is again that is sort of generalized though that's that but feels sort of evangelical right? That it's not fundamentalist, but it has kind of an evangelical feel to it that I think clan members would be comfortable with, that it wouldn't be so far out of their realm of what they were used to, that they could kind of grasp onto it in some kind of way. Um, That the Bible is important, that they're quoting Bible verses, right? As a part of this too. Um, So that they just created this kind of Protestantism that was not quite one size fits all, but also sort of was um, for members to participate in and that was familiar enough that they could say, well, this is sort of like what I do at church, right? This is close enough to what I do at church. This is close enough to what I do here, that these kind of fit together in some sort of way. That it wasn't something that was like, out of left field, that it wasn't going to be something that was really strange to clans members, um, that it was going to be something that was more familiar than anything else, I think. Um, It just took a lot of the kind of denominational particularity and Mm -hmm. got rid of that, right? So that they didn't get caught up in like, are you a Methodist or a Presbyterian, right? Like that wasn't the piece that mattered the most there. Yeah, and just like the popular conception focuses on racial terrorism. Uh, as far mm-hmm. as people think of the Klan, they think of the Rogues. Right. That. But that was just, race was just one part of yes. these larger concerns. And this Protestant Christianity was a big part of that concern and the identity. But the their conception of race and an American race and, and what particular blend of of Europeans, you know, were represented by this ideology it reminds me a lot of what you just said about the the kind of maglamation of the protestant stuff right yeah no it very much was it was was their particular european um ideas that we pull from that make who become americans right and we combine them together and that becomes the american race but we have all these other folks that we want to exclude right and they don't count but as soon as these people hit America, then they're no longer considered immigrants, right? And something has happened magically that have now made them Americans. And now we have this thing called the American race. And these people are now white. 
and they're American and they're Christian and this is what's what, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's this, it's really interesting thing that they do um, where they are so critical about other folks, right? And the race of other people and the way that they approach other people's religion but they don't want to acknowledge all the kinds of magical thinking that they do to kind of create this American race and this understanding of an American race that they create, right? To get white Christians as the essential American people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They don't want to like delve very deeply and critically into that <laughs> at all, but they do, yeah. it, you know, they had these interesting classifications and mm-hmm. Like what you're talking about, where they said, well, the Nordics and the Celts and the um, Anglo-Saxons all got together in Britain. And then they yep. made this perfect white Protestant race. And we came over here. And yep. their, their, their their conception of the United the, the American land was just that it was there for them, you know. Right. And right. once we got over here, there was like this mystical change. And there, there's a lot of that. But then because of their anti-Catholicism, they divide the Catholics into these different groups. So, well, the Celts, which I would be the Irish, the Mediterranean. Yeah. Uh, that's, well, I guess, the Italians and and, and uh, Spanish people or whatever. But then they had another one, which is the Alpines, which. Yeah, that would be what, totally I, unknown I, to people now. Could not figure that out. Yeah. What Alpines yeah. were supposed like to be. Central, Catholic Central Europeans, I'm thinking. Yeah, maybe. I don't know that I even necessarily figured it out, all the different categories that they had, right, where they have, like, mapped out, right, Europe in this kind of way and right. attached it attached it not only to ethnicity, right, but as you're saying, to religion, too, that, that these were um, deeply attached to each other. Um, and yeah. I think that's one of the um, things that's important here is that for them um, – race was this kind of interesting combination of both like religion and race that these were like bound together that they weren't like these neat distinct categories that we sometimes imagine them to be but for them they were always kind of combined so it's like white protestant was both a religious category but also a racial category for them does that make sense yeah yeah. um yeah but there was these combined like identity categories that they were working from always you know that they then always kind of reflected back on um and that the white protestant of course is like the most superior category that they had right Um, because it's who they were um and who they were always talking about and thinking about the most uh, like they're trying to way. construct this broader cultural identity in the same ways that maybe like Catholics or Jewish people might have. Like, even if they're not religious, it's kind of this just broader cultural identity. Yeah. Yeah. No, they really wanted, they really understood it as this kind of broader cultural, right? National even identity. Yeah, that, you know, because then it comes to their patriotism, too, right? Like, so to be a good patriot, you also had to be like a white Protestant Christian, right? So that even your national identity had to be based on this, like, religious racial identity as well. Um, And so it was really complicated in a way that 
I was not expecting it to be complicated mm -hmm. when I got into this work. Um, I kind of expected them to be like neat, distinct categories, right? Like we, when we think about, and I think this is, it says something about how we study this stuff where we're like, oh, it's like race, it's religion, it's gender, right? And that's how we like mark them in our heads when, when, when people live this stuff is of course not that way, right? Like these identities are all meshed up together and they're hard to separate. So, yeah. um, of course it would be, um, more complicated than I thought it would be, but I was really surprised by how much they articulated the way that these categories were entangled with each other all the time, that they were not doing this kind of neat separation, right. But they were always kind of referring back to each other. It reminds me of I'm studying a lot of like the 19th century European revolutions and nationalisms right now. And like, because America, uh, the United States really kind of skipped a lot of like the ethno nationalism stuff, even though, you know, like you say, white supremacy was kind of just taken for granted, but there wasn't this like codified thing, like what happened, you know, for who became Germans, who became French, who became right. And so it's like um, the States is really like late to the game. It seems like, and here they are in the 20th century trying to form this kind of right. like ethno national identity that would seems like it belongs to the, to the 19th century to me. Right. Yeah. That it, I, and I feel like so much of um, talking about the 1920s clan is talking about how late they are to the game and things. Right. Yeah. Um, that yeah, that they're trying to build something when like the time has already passed, right? Um, that Americans, the character of the American nation has already like shifted beneath their feet, right? Like it is already a multicultural place by the time that they really want it to not be, you yeah. know? Um, but that's that probably really trying to... in the fears at that point. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know? I mean, I think that's part of what um, was driving them is that they are seeing that things are shifting and that they don't have the control that they thought they did. And that that's part of this like attempt to recreate the nation in their own image um, and to make it look like them, right? And um, be like them. But um, but it is like, I think that's such an interesting point about, you know, that they're trying to create this ethno-nationalism uh, in a moment where like the time has gone by <laughs> for this to happen. But I feel like it's a thing that continues to happen, right? Like this is why we're still having conversations about white Christian nationalism in 2023, right? That there's still this desire um, for this um, still today um, in maybe a different a different form, but this is still like part of the conversation where people still want this to be some sort of white Christian nation um, enough that we still have to talk about this in, you know, a hundred years later, um, I think is really telling and disturbing <laughs> that it's still relevant in some kind of way. And as you said before, there was a real emphasis on Catholicism and mm -hmm. anti-Catholicism. And um, from reading the book, I mean, you could see just how obsessional they were. Yeah. And it seems like it was a lot more than just, um, as you said, you know, 
of course, they're against African Americans, they're against Jews as well, but the, the, their main focus is Catholic, Roman Catholicism. Right. right. And can you talk some of, about some of the propaganda that they put sure. out to try yeah. to sway people that like you? I, I love the language that they use. Everything was always Rome, Rome, Rome. Yeah. That's, the, that, yeah. that's what they said all the time. Yeah. So they had a number of different concerns when it came to Catholics. One was a concern that, um, I'll use the language, right, that Rome was going to control Catholics in the United States and tell them how to vote, right? So part of this was this concern that the Pope had direct control over American Catholics and that he could tell them how to vote and then Catholics would take over the political system, right? This was one of the very popular ones. That, of course, ignores the fact that, like, how American Catholics actually react to the Pope, right? So, I mean, this is the the interesting piece, of course, of these is always like the conspiracy, like assumes like so much power among this political, like the Pope as like a religious and political leader and then ignores how people act in their day to day and how this plays out. There was a lot of concern with the confessional and what happened in the confessional so um, deep concern about women entering into the confessional and what priests did in the confessional. So there were a number of anti-Catholic lecturers the Klan employed that would go around doing these anti-Catholic lectures uh, about like the dangers of the confessional to American women, but also um, a supposedly former nun uh, anti-Catholic mm. lecturer that the Klan also employed who went around talking about the dangers of the convent, right? And how um, young girls were being tricked into being nuns, right? And then were being abused, right? And being treated um, poorly or about how Protestant girls were being snatched from the streets, right? And then being forced into the convents, these Sh- kinds of things. Helen, Helen Jackson? Yeah, the Helen Jackson. Yeah. yeah. Um, reading that reading that once again i'm just like it's the current QAnon. yeah no you right? can i mean see, that's it I you mean, can it's... see these narratives and how they yeah. like come through right um but yeah the concern over like over children somehow being in danger of like somehow ending up in these convents and being forced to be nuns concern over vulnerable white women ending up somehow in confessionals. I don't know how Protestant white women would end up in confessionals. I mean, like that logistically doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but like, you know, that this is part of the, the storytelling here, um, you know, and so these are like the, the big like narratives that they tell. Yeah. Um, and then of course, what happens here is that these lecturers come to be discounted, right? Like you find out that these anti-Catholic lecturers um, aren't former priests or former nuns, right? Like this is a big story that they've told and that there's yeah. been a lot of energy put behind them, but they aren't necessarily who they say they are, right? Um, but they have been pushing these stories um, and have gotten a lot of attention, but um, definitely aren't the people that they claim to be in some kind of way. Um, there was also some concern over Catholic hierarchy. This is You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This one kills me, but um, the Catholic hierarchy and how it was anti-democratic, um, that one I love because the Klan was also a hierarchy, right? right, right. Um, and so I just love the Klan being very much like Catholics have a hierarchy. This yeah. means they can't be democratic at the same time that the Klan's bureaucracy was very much a hierarchy, right? And set up in this yeah. way. Who were the um, first Sacrament Knights and who were the first chivalrous orders? That's all I mean. Yeah. 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 No. So um so projection. I do love I do love the projection piece there, right? Where yeah. they're they're like, but we're pro-democratic, right? And anyway, it's just um Sometimes well, when they do that, it's it's too much to bear, I think. Well, it's interesting because as they're talking about, well, the Catholics, if they take over, they'll just take they'll just take orders from the Pope, they'll take orders from Rome. But meanwhile, what is the clan wanting to do? They're wanting yeah. to set up an order that is based in a Christian in a in a Christian church and a Christian yeah. worldview. So yeah. that's where they're going to be focused is trying to promote Christian, those kind of Christian values. So it's really the same in a lot of ways. I see this again and again, in a lot of these groups that it's just like, there is this weird projection of, you know, what they say their enemy is going to do is what they are actually wanting. What they actually want to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know, in the clan too, I, I talk about this in the book, right. And Indiana had the clan legislature where they had, populated the legislature with enough Klan um, legislators. And so, you know, and tried to pass a number of bills that would support their agenda, Bibles in schools, um, do all this stuff. They ultimately were not very successful. They were not very good at their jobs. But, um, you know, it was this attempt to establish, you know, all of this power that they had, like to take all this power that they had supposedly and like establish um, all of their, you know, Protestant Christian ideals in this one place. So they tried really hard to do this. Um, but, you know, you're exactly right, because this is what they wanted to do, right? Like they wanted the Bible in schools, but they wanted it to be their Bible, right? Like they wanted to get rid of Catholic schools because they were, they wanted Catholics in public schools learning what they wanted them to learn, not what Catholics were learning in parochial schools. Um, you know, they wanted... <laughs> citizens to go through public schools in a very particular way and learn very particular things. Um, 
So yeah, it is always kind of fascinating when you see that level of like, what I'm concerned my enemy is doing is actually what I want to do. And so that's what I'm going to get hung up on, right? And talk about and complain about and point out when really it's my agenda the whole time to do the same sort of thing. And there was their mortal enemy, the Knights of Columbus. Yes. Yeah. The Knights of Columbus who, um, they claimed, um, was inherently violent, right. And had this, uh, oath that they said this super grotesque violent oath that they claimed that they had found, right. Um, that they, um, said that they had found and, you know, just that it was a violent order that you had to watch out for, um, when really, you know, it looked kind of similar to the clan in some ways. Can I read that? Yeah, Uh, sure. Go for it. But yeah, no, it's, it's a (laughs) wild one. Yeah, so this is what they said that the 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 oath, if you wanted to become a Knights of Columbus, was. They said, I will defend this doctrine, Roman Catholic positions on Jesus, the virgin birth, the papacy, etc. That's the um and his holiness's right and custom against all usurpers of the heretical or Protestant authority. I do further promise and declare that I have no opinion or will of my own or any mental reservation whatsoever, even as a corpse or a cadaver but will unhesitatingly obey each and every command that I may receive from my superiors in the militia of the Pope and of Jesus Christ. I do further promise and declare that I will, when opportunity presents, make and wage relentless war secretly and openly against all heretics, Protestants and Masons, as I am directed to do to extirpate them from the face of the whole earth, and that I will spare neither age, sex, or condition, and that I will hang, burn, waste, boil, flay, strangle, and bury alive these infamous heretics, rip up the stomachs and wombs of their women, and crush their infants' heads against the walls in order to annihilate their execrable race. Obviously a fake, right? Obviously a fake. But the Klan circulated this to show that the Knights of Columbus was definitely a violent order, definitely something that was threatening, and that more importantly, that they were coming after Protestants, right? Um, So that they were showing this around to say and to show white Protestants that they needed to be on the lookout because there was this basically this paramilitary order of Catholics that were after you um, that took their orders from the Pope and that you had to be aware of them and had to be wary of them in some kind of way. Um, And unsurprisingly, the Catholic press did not take this, you know, very well. And, um, pretty much was like, this is fake. This is not real. You know, we're not going to stand for this. Um, that this is just them trying to create this kind of drama. Um, but kind of a very typical clan move to be like, look at this order of soldiers who is dangerous and is doing these sorts of things at the same time, trying to claim to be a group of Christian knights who are defending the nation, who are not going to allow themselves to be threatened, who are doing this sort of thing, right? Um, But but wouldn't want to ever have anyone say that they were doing a similar kind of thing of the Knights of Columbus. The Knights of Columbus definitely wouldn't want to say that they were 
similar to the clan in any way, shape or form. And I wouldn't want to equate these two groups at all either. Um, but I do think it's interesting that the clan was so vehemently <laughs> opposed to the Knights of Columbus, right? Like that they didn't want to see any similarity at all because this was a Catholic group, right? Like, and so they could not stand and they had to be the most awful group ever, right? Because of all the other anti-Catholic um well, basically conspiracy theories, right? That they had about them and, yeah. you know, and and promoted about them and said about them, um, even when they claimed that they weren't anti-Catholic, right? I mean, because that's the whole interesting piece here is that the Klan really wanted to be like saying really anti-Catholic things, but also wanted to be like, but we aren't really right. anti-Catholic, right? You know. It was interesting reading your book and also... Over the weekend, I watched this five-hour documentary about Northern Ireland. Oh, wow. And it was interesting. It was just completely by chance. I just turned that on. and But it was interesting seeing the same rhetoric and ideas kind of in place in some of like the Ulster Defense League and some of these the, the, on the Protestant side and how that conflict sparked off because of similar ideas that were that the clan espoused with their anti-catholicism interesting you talked about how they basically had the indiana legislator captured at certain points and i just i know in colorado too uh to a certain degree the the state government was in a really heavy influence and i'm just wondering i mean in some of these places they probably did almost actualize their goals and, and especially like small town you know, America, you got to think some of these places must have been like they were an effective, effectively a shadow government. And who knows what was going on? You know, I mean, they, they were basically could run the show. Yeah, I don't I don't have good evidence about when they were right. I, I know about the Indiana example. I mean, I could probably guess it in some places that they had more power. Right. And were more effective than they were in Indiana. I think that that's probably a fair thing to say, right? Um, but yeah, I think that just by the sheer virtue of how many members there were and um, the fact that they were often prominent people, that I think in some places they probably were a lot more effective than they were in others, right? And had ability to control things in a way that maybe they weren't able to in other places that were bigger, right? Or more metropolitan or something like this. Um, but I just, I don't have good like right. data, right? About that. Um, there's a, really shore uh, that up. Yeah. There's a, a folksy and very controversial uh, conspiracy theorist who uh, in some of his like autobiographical material really paints this picture of him growing up in 1920s, Oklahoma. Okay. As this like just totally captured clan domain pretty much of like huh. it's a lot of weird stuff. It's it's probably halfway pseudo history, but I think there's some glimpses of what that reality might have been like. All this kind of comes to a head and you have a whole chapter about this in the book. Um the Notre Dame riot. Yeah, right. So they have this broad idea that they're gonna have a rally in in the same town as Notre Dame University, which yes. was kind of just asking for problems. Yes. But. So they 
decide to have a rally in South Bend, uh, where the University of Notre Dame is. Um, and it doesn't go well for them, to say the least. Um, and so they have a riot that happens over multiple days. Um, depending on who you believe, it either goes well for Notre Dame or it goes sort of well for the Klan. Actually, no matter who you believe, it goes better for Notre Dame than it goes for the Klan. The Klan cannot declare a victory in this, no matter how it goes down. Um, so they try to rewrite the history of it in different ways, right? To talk about how Catholics are un-American and they were terrible to them and these sorts of things. Um, while the Notre Dame students like to claim a victory over the terrible clan, right? And how, who are awful and who treat Catholics terribly and this sort of thing. Um, but yeah, no, it was a wild moment. And the stories that come out after it are even wilder because it's folks trying to re-narrate what happened, right? And one of the things that became abundantly clear to me as I went through all of this is that there was a little bit of truth in a lot of these stories um, that you could maybe find if you pieced it together. But there was a lot of like exaggeration and a lot of like storytelling that was happening on top of it, right? Um, there is good documentary evidence of Notre Dame students wearing Klan robes that they ripped off of Klansmen. Like yeah. that legitimately happened, right? Um, it is very clear that um, Notre Dame students chased Klansmen away, right? Um, and took down a fiery cross emblem that was like a um, outdoor sign um, with potatoes. <laughs> um, that happened. Um, but a lot of this stuff is just Klansmen trying to like tell a story to make themselves look better after the fact, right? Where, you know, the Notre Dame students were terrible. Um, one of my favorite retellings, because it's just so ridiculous, is that there was one clan observer that wanted to claim that a Notre Dame student smacked a baby in the face, right? You know, yeah, to, yeah. to show how terrible the Notre Dame students were, that they were even smacking a, a Protestant, babies. A Protestant baby. A Protestant baby. And it was a baby girl too, right? So like the insult was even further, you know, um, conveyed in that. And so you had like these wild stories about what happened um, to show, the Klan wanted to show that Catholics were un-American because of how they were treating these white Protestants, that they were treating them so terribly. And um, the Catholic press wanted to show that the Klan was terrible and that Catholics were acting in a way to defend themselves, but also to show that they were American, right? And that they belonged here and these sorts of things. So you had this like battle about who belonged, right? And who really belonged in questions over exclusion and inclusion and, and these kinds of things. But it was one of those moments where I was just like, this is a thing that really happened, huh? <laughs> you know, like you were as a historian, sometimes you find this stuff and you think like, you have to be kidding me. And I was like, they're not kidding. They actually did riot in the streets and this is real. And I have photographic evidence that people did this and yeah. Okay. I wish someone filmed it. Yeah, yeah, really. They tried to use it as a propaganda piece. Say, yeah. look at the Notre Dame 
Catholic boys are they're really bad and this is what's this is what's going to happen and you called the chapter Rome's reputation is stained with Protestant blood. Yeah, which came and from one like, of the propaganda. I don't, I pieces. don't think. Yeah, I don't think anybody died. I, you know, it was really just kind of just a almost like a glorified bar fight. But yeah, it they really made this was. thing seem bigger than it actually yeah. really was. No, it was a it was a fight for like the soul of America. Is the way the stories after made it look right. Wow. So instead of it just being them fighting in the streets, it became like this, like almost cosmic battle, sort of in how they told, um, you know, the pamphlets that came afterwards, right? That just made it bigger and bigger and bigger than it was. Yeah. Like you said, like the propaganda that followed was just, it got wilder and wilder and wilder as it kind of went along. Speaking of that propaganda, um, you talk about how instrumental all of their, their journals were, and their, their different periodicals, like they had like weekly ones, um, ones that were centered in different, um, different cities or States. And the fact that like a lot of academics you said weren't really using the source material to yeah. put things in perspective with their own words. Right. So what was that like just going through the stuff and doing the primary source work? Yeah, no. Um, so it was a lot uh, is the short answer. Um, so one of the things I tried to do was to look at their print and to try to take it somewhat seriously. Um, I knew that they were using it to make themselves look good. And I knew that they were using it as a tool for recruitment and these sorts of things. Um, but I kind of wanted to take it seriously to see what they were saying to each other, right? Because these were for internal use and to sort of talk to each other back and forth and this kind of thing and for official use as well. Um, and so I just wanted to see what would happen if I followed along with them. And what I realized pretty quick was um, that they talked a lot <laughs> and said lots of things that I was kind of surprised that they would say out loud um, and that they would immortalize in print. Right. Um, and so I thought that it was kind of interesting that other historians historians had been so quick to be dismissive of these because um, of what they preserved and what we were able to have access to because of what they left behind. Um, so I found it to be a really rich resource. Now, I understood that that was also kind of a, like a risky kind of move, right, to, to follow along with them on this and to do that. Um, but I thought it was overall worthwhile because it meant that I was able to kind of really dig deep by what they meant about white supremacy or what they meant by Protestantism or, mm -hmm. you know, go on this wild journey by how they constructed what the American race is, you know, or this sort of thing um, and follow along beside them. Because I think a lot of the big picture with that that you ended up with was that it was a lot more mainstream and that mm -hmm. it's, it's legacy and it's passing the torch, like you say, is found in more mainstream right-wing populism that continues today that's not it's not right. so much in the just like you know extremist hate groups right yeah no i think i i agree with you i mean i think that's what was so interesting to me is that i don't know going in that i thought i was going to find that it was going to be as mainstream as what i discovered 
um, because I really came to it understanding the Klan as part of a larger hate movement. And I don't want to remove the Klan from that trajectory, right? right. That's not what I'm saying here. Um, but the resonances with the mainstream and putting it inside the mainstream, I think is important too. And so that I think was part of what surprised me about this research is that I was like, oh, wow, this is a lot less fringy than I thought it was going to be when I got into this work. And it turned out to be much more mainstream and mainline kind of Protestantism too, um, than I was really expecting. Um, and I think that I wouldn't have gotten that if I hadn't have looked at the print, right? Which is exactly mm -hmm. what you said. Um, I wouldn't have gotten there in the same kind of way. Well, and like, I think it's important that we don't let some of those broader movements distance themselves as much and regulate the twenties clan to the fringe mm -hmm. because they do have so much in common. And that's a, something we really need to pay attention to. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I, it's part of, it's been my little like soapbox for, I don't know how many years now where I try to really not let people get away with like pushing them to the fringe. Right. Which is, I think a lot of the rhetorical move still is to say, oh, no, 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 right? Like they don't matter to this movement or they don't matter to when we're telling this story or, you know, they're really just still a fringe movement. And I feel like that's when I get my little podium out and I'm like, actually, <laughs> we should should pay a little more closer attention to this, right? Or maybe I have a book for you or something like this. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there are resonances of the 1920s clan in more mainline mainstream movements that we just have to kind of pay attention to. Um, and as Adam pointed out earlier, that that has a larger history too, that we can look at earlier nativist movements and where that comes from as well, right? So that there's a longer history that this is a part of as well that we have to pay attention to too, that it just doesn't start with the 1920s clan that they're adopting and repackaging earlier ideas um that then get pushed into these movements as well yeah and if you've seen like gangs of new york i mean you know just that time period and the anti the the native sentiment and the anti-catholic anti-irish sentiment i mean like i said that has been a stream of american political discourse for a long long time right there was also a women's plan mm -hmm. movement as well the wkkk mm-hmm and how the the women that were involved with this how they viewed themselves as part of the larger uh, structure yeah so the wkkk is interesting because one of the kind of key concepts for the men's order is protecting white womanhood and so this idea that white women are inherently like vulnerable and need defense and so the women's order understood that, but also understood that they had the ability to be their own people and had some role in changing the nation too. So that they really understood themselves as having some power and potential as mothers to intervene in the nation 
by raising white children and raising them in very particular ways and kind of shepherding them through citizenship and school and this kind of thing, right? That mothers had this ability and this power that um, they could mobilize in a way that men couldn't mobilize. Um, They also were really pro-women's suffrage (laughs) and getting the right to vote by arguing that if white women could vote with white men, then there could be this kind of solidarity and a political block, right, that would lead to voting in the ways that um, would support the causes of the Klan. Um, Of course, that's sort of funny, considering that part of what the Klan was nervous about was Roman Catholics voting in a big voting block, right? And doing this sort of thing. Um, But but yeah, so they were an interesting group because they didn't always go along with what the men's order wanted them to do, that they had some agency and made some choices about how they understood themselves. Um, and they always weren't always happy with how the men's order handled themselves. So one of the kind of funny things that I found is that um, there are speeches from like Robbie Gill Comer, who was um, one of the presidents of the women's order, um, where she sort of chides the men's order for not living up to their potential, which is kind of funny. Um, and kind of gets on to them at the same time that she's like, but, oh, you know, us, we're just here to help. That's all we're here for. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, where she very much like understood how to like maneuver um, with this identity as the women were helpers and that they're mothers, um, but also trying to gain some kind of political power and have some say over their lives too, in a way that I think the men's order was not expecting. I think they really expected the women were going to fall in line (laughs) with them in a way that didn't entirely happen. Um, So it was an interesting group. Um, But, uh, but yeah, the way that they mobilize their identity as white mothers to get stuff done is definitely something that we see now um, and happening in, yeah in dangerous ways so yeah i mean that parallels around the same time period the uh prevalence of women in the british fascist movement i mean they basically Mm. led it and it's just it is important to see you know the history of feminism and women being involved in politics you know like taking it as a whole and that it's not always a uh, aggressive cause necessarily right right wings like they they they're right wing women too like yeah no, I think, and I think that's such an important point that I I try to emphasize is that oftentimes when we talk about like women's movements, I think people tend to think that they're progress, like inherently progressive, right? No. Where they're like, oh, they're all about these sorts of things, and I'm like, uh, not the what? women I oh. study, right? Like, mm, no, not always, you know. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And seeing seeing all the photos too of like all the women in the garb and stuff was mm-hmm. was kind of a uh, kind of odd. Yeah. I think that the last question and really in closing in this is you wrote this book, um you published it in twenty eleven. It seems like you're writing it in like around twenty ten. Mm-hmm. So it was really kind of the and you talk about this at the the afterword of the book about the tea party and that was kind of just getting going at that time. Mitching Glenn Beck and Terry uh, Jones, who I that's that was a blast from the past that I've right. not heard that name for a long time. Um, um, 
But now, you know, here we are, 2023. Lots of craziness has gone down. Real quick, you were in Knoxville at this time too, right? Yeah, yeah. So me and Adam were in Tennessee. and So I'm real curious about, you know, how what happened then, and you've answered some of this already, but how the, what happened then parallels what is going on now. Yeah. And we're like, we're like an even 100 years away from that. Right, from I it. know. Yeah. You know, I have a friend of mine who periodically texts me and is like, how does it feel to be living in your book? And I'm like, uh, not cool, man. Uh, not cool. Right. Um, and so I think, I think, unfortunately, there are still like some parallels, right? Like, um, you know, I, I think we have white moms like moms for liberty who are mobilizing their identities to do not great things really terrible things um when it comes to stuff around children and um and parents rights uh that are not great for our society i think that we have folks that are still invested in a particular idea of a white christian nation that they're trying to impose on the rest of us that's really exclusionary and really dangerous for particular types of people. Um, I think that I live in Florida now (laughs) with a legislature that keeps trying and keeps succeeding in taking rights away from people. Um, and that feels directly related to a particular type of white Christian nationalism um, and a particular and real, type of fascism. Yeah, so, we're really you know, trying to shape a, the historical narrative as well. Yeah, and and very much trying to erase particular types of historical narratives, right? Um, to make certain people look better than they are, right? Um, and so I just, I feel like a lot of it still resonates even though I wish it didn't. Um, And so that afterward today would be really different, but also not. Does that make sense? Like different contemporary examples, but I feel like some of the conclusions I'm drawing wouldn't be that different, which makes me really bummed actually. So there's that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's weird. It makes me wonder if like the, the absence, you know, we're in this like bowling alone society and the absence mm-hmm. of paternalism and all this stuff. It seems like people are really finding these identities now and really, you know, getting together. And, um, you know, that that's, that that's a part of it, you know, it's, it's giving them an identity and mm-hmm. it's real scary stuff. Yeah, no, it is. It really is. Yeah. I, today there's an article out there. Um, one of the heads of the, Southern Baptist Convention has been actually critical of Trump in his influence on evangelical Christians. And he said that he has had pastors that have come up to him that have quoted the Sermon on the Mount, the literal Sermon on the Mount. And these people will come up to him and say, oh, well, that's weak. Why are you, why are you teaching woke ideology? Um, you know, and he says, well, I'm literally quoting Jesus. And then they also are telling these, he's also hearing some of these people saying that, well, that, that might have worked in that time, but the turn the other cheek stuff, but now we got to get together and we got to, you know, and it's very much that same idea of like, we got to stand against the heathen and all that stuff. Um, I find that 
I find that concerning. And it's yeah. very it's it's sectarian. That's wild. Um, there's an irony though, I think, in this that with, especially with the, with the anti-Catholicism, you are seeing this very kind of now every kind of traditionalist right-wing Catholicism. Yeah. That is represented by even some of our politicians that are on the on, yeah, uh, that are part of the right wing, and I find that ironic that 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 now you know like like that's the only thing that you could say that's different really is that like the, the now that's that's accepted. There's a new amalgamation and and whiteness right. definition of whiteness is changing. We're seeing mm-hmm. a, a lot of self-identifying white Hispanics are becoming leaders in, in these extreme right wing movements as as these definitions are changing well i was going to point out that just like reading your afterward i'm reading i'm just thinking was this like the beginning of this current what we're oh, yeah. dealing with now yeah know? yeah i remember it yeah it, it was for sure yeah feels like it right it feels like that like 2010 moment was mm-hmm. start of something right that we are still reckoning with now and then all those damn people got on Facebook and it just <laughs> exploded. Yeah. Right. Kelly, this has been this has been a great interview. I think we could talk more about this because you got a lot in the book and we just didn't even really scratch the surface on it. But um where can people find the book and where can people find your other writings and, okay. and about you? All right. Well, the book is at Amazon if you feel like shopping that way or at bookshop.org. Um, you can find me on, I'm not calling it X on Twitter now (laughs) also known as X, um, at Kelly underscore J underscore Baker. Um, I'm also on blue sky at Kelly J Baker. Um, that's where I'm hanging out more these days. Let's see. Um, my other writing is also available on Amazon. If you're interested in zombies, for example, you can find my work on that there. Uh, I think, let's see. And then I also have a website, um, www.kellyjbaker.com. So we can find a bunch of my other stuff hanging around there. The other thing that you can find me at, which I totally did not forget, is the podcast that I co-host, which is Pod Only Knows, where we talk to religious study scholars about religion and also other folks that do religion um, about how and why um religion does things in our world so that's pretty cool awesome all right thanks for coming on yeah thanks for having me stay on the line for us we're just going to close out real quick um we are counting down to the strange realities conference 2023 coming up in a couple of months so get your tickets whether you're coming to nashville or you're going to be there online that is November 3rd and 4th at SIR Nashville and November 5th on online only. And of course the whole thing is online. We've got some great speakers on tap and you guys can go to strangerealitiesconference.com and you can find all out all about that. And I will hopefully in the next few days, we're going to be working on schedule. Um, but uh, keep in mind, there's uh, this section between people that are going to be at SIR and people that are going to be online only. And we also have our Patreon. If you guys want to show us some love, um, Sir Fiel can tell you where to find that. 
You can find that at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. And everyone, uh, also, if you are planning on coming to Strange Realities this year, we encourage you to reach out to us or try to reach out to fellow attendees uh, to organize things like carpools, sharing Airbnbs, pooling resources. Uh, That always helps because we know it's a lot uh, to come to another city for a whole weekend. Uh, We know you'll have fun, but um, we can find ways to help you save and uh, spend your money on uh, buying all the speakers, books, and merchandise and stuff. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Uh, Next week, we're going to have a special roundtable episode. So really looking forward to that. Join us next time on Spearing or When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.